Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. What to do when your essay spouse objectifies people when out in public and doesn't even know it. I see it happening in front of me. Did not call him out in the moment, came home and spoke about it when he started and when he stated he didn't even remember doing it. SA has been working on objectification. Is it normal for essays to simply remove this from their brain? Is it because I was with him when he was on, uh, versus when he's on his own? He seems to be more conscious of it when alone or not in my presence. So, um, Tammy, that's probably a few questions. So why don't you pull one out of there so everyone gets a chance and um, we will answer one of those. <laughs> that's well, okay. I think the first piece of it is like, you know, is it is it common for, for an essay to not even be aware? I think that's a really key thing. Or, you know, to when they say, I don't even know I was doing that and you're going, you're lying. Well, is it? So denial is a wonderful thing. It allows me to do things for very long periods of time that I don't even know I'm doing. And sometimes after a while, I don't really don't even know I'm doing them. And for sex addicts, objectification, you know, if somebody's 40, they've been doing it for 25 years, you know, unabated. So I do believe there's an automatic piece of it. Um, but uh, what did I want to say about that? Um, I'm really glad that he's working on this and is aware of this. I think that's important. I don't think you have anything to do with it, whether you're with him, whether you're not with him. He's either focusing on this or he isn't. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to say about that. Um, did not tell me in the moment. Um, I, I also think that part of, so we run a treatment center. One of the things that I see come up on a regular basis, this is part of the work, and you addicts who are at Seeking Integrity right now, you know this, is that we are teaching you guys, we, we teach awareness. When do I know I'm in trouble? And then there's all of this, like, what do you do? How do you handle it? You know what? But the first piece is, and a lot of people, I'll, I'll give you an example. I work with a guy who said, I don't understand why women keep up coming up to me and chatting me up. I must be a really good looking guy because I can't imagine anyone. I can't imagine why they keep coming up to me. And we had to sit and go through everything he did in a public space. And what, what he told me was, and this was the story that he was making an example out of, he was at a ticket booth, like at a, at a ballpark. And he was standing there with a bunch of people and he started cracking all these jokes and making fun. And before you knew it, people were moving toward him and engaging with him and some of them are women. So what he didn't see is that action of cracking jokes and being silly and cutting up or whatever it was, was the key to getting women to come over to him. And until he could see that, which he wasn't aware of, which we had to make him aware of, then he was able to say, oh, I get it. I need to stop that. And that will stop this issue because he wasn't that good looking. So anyway, Tammy, you have anything for this? Well, and I mentioned it. I don't remember on which webinar, but, but you know, like doing some bookending, if you're going to go out in public, like call your sponsor, have an accountability. What, what do I need to do? And then call your sponsor at the end. What, you know, and just having that focus be, I'm going out. What do I need to do? What do I need to be present? You know, it's, it's that mindful piece of it, you know, can help interrupt the, oh, I've been doing this 25 years. So in order to do things differently, we have to do things differently. I want to add one more thing. Sure. I think if you're uncomfortable, you need to tell him. 
So even if he isn't aware of it, you're having dinner and you see him looking out and you probably a waitress behind you or a waiter, whatever he's into. Um, I would say, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable right now. I feel, I feel like, and I would do it this way because, okay, I'll say this. My husband is often on the phone and I'm in the room, but I'm alone. <laughs> so I've learned not to say, get off the phone or that, you know, I say, you know, I'm feeling a little lonely right now and I kind of miss you. Or could we focus on something together? I don't necessarily say the phone. I just ask for what I want. And so I think you could say, you know, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. You seem kind of distracted. That's all it takes. And you are not getting into anything that's like this because you're saying how you feel. And then he gets to maybe start to wake up to this a little bit because he's seeing how it affects you. I love that idea. Okay, so the next one is I'm really conflicted with viewing my SA partner as simultaneously the best person and the worst person I've ever known. I've always felt he was strong in all the areas I was lacking, but uh, lean, learning about the magnitude of the secrecy of his addiction and realizing what he's capable of makes me uncertain whether I'm able to move past it, despite the great strides he's made in recovery. What can I do to reconcile these two versions of my partner? Well, my first question would be, and I think you'd think this too, Tammy, how long? Like, have they been at this three months, six months, a year, three? Because um, those feelings, so let me just back up. What you're calling is, um, what, you're, what you're talking about is a, 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 an expression that a friend of mine named Sophia Cottle in North Carolina brought to me, which is this concept of ambivalent love. I think she's writing a book about it, which is when someone you've been with and loved and they've loved you and you've been connected, you know, good or bad, right or wrong for a long time. Um, you're going to look over and say, oh, you know, they're fixing the fireplace. That's really great. Or, oh, they're playing with the kids or, oh, they're doing whatever. And you will have that feeling that, that you've always had of I'm appreciative, I'm grateful and I care about them. However, you also hate them because they've ruined your life, they've lied to you, they've manipulated, you know, all of that stuff. So we call this ambivalent love, which can make a lot of partners feel crazy, like you're feeling, which is, how can I love him and hate him at the same time? You absolutely can have more than one feeling at a time, and they can be absolutely diametrically opposed, because sometimes, look, sometimes I look at my dog and I say, I love my dog, and I can't wait, let's cuddle. And sometimes I look at him and say, oh, God, do I have to get up and walk him again? You know, so I love and I'm annoyed by my, you know, so I'm, giving examples here but Tammy do you have a thought about this yeah and I think the time factor is um is really key here I think the more time that goes by uh and the more work you see him doing your essay doing the the more those pieces come together and it's never going to be like oh he can he or she can never hurt me ever again um you know like we're in this together always because you know that there has been betrayal you know that that person can do that but uh, you know I, I think dr rob does a great job in pro-dependence talking about just loving a broken person and so so it isn't that black and white because otherwise you would have bolted at the first sign of all of this because you mm -hmm. are able to step in and see that th those great things and you know and then there's this really really dark piece but but it's a piece it's not like you know they're a monster oh. mm -hmm. so um okay next question uh gay married 90 days past discovery eight weeks from full disclosure i'm the betrayer how worried should i be about my so-so memory oh well that wasn't all of the information, personal information, I wasn't sure related to the end part, but let me just say one thing. I, one of the most important thing, books for me to write because I am a gay man is a book called Cruise Control, Understanding Sex Addiction in Gay Men. 
Um, and I just, in general, if you're a gay man, it's very hard. It's like being an alcoholic in a bar. You know, there are different sexual mores. It's a different sexual culture. And it's hard to determine, well, is my behavior okay or not? And so that's one of the things I wanted to write about is what is normative in that community versus when you know you have a problem. So if you hadn't read Cruise Control, buy it. I'll make 12 cents. The publisher makes the rest. But it'll probably be helpful, really helpful for you. Um, the other piece, um, just the last piece, and I'm not sure. Tammy, what that, hold on, let me look at the last sentence. Um, how should I, oh, memory. Um, so I'm not sure what you mean by memory, but I can only speak to what I know about um, addicts is that, well, let me try it this way. A lot of times when I'm working with a couple, a spouse will want disclosure, which is all the information about what's happened during the period of time that they were with them that they didn't know about. And this is a process we often go through with couples that it's appropriate for. However, we don't do it on day one. We do it six or eight weeks in. And from the addicts, addicts, or at least I do, and from the addicts perspective, the reason I take so much time is that we don't remember stuff. We have been through so many people in so many places and done so many things over the years that we just don't remember. And so part of working, I think, with a good therapist around regaining your memory, if you will, is doing timelines. And heck, I have to say, I'll push another book. In our in the workbook I wrote on Sex Addiction 101, there's a whole timeline in there about where you can start to look at where was I working? Where did I live? Was I in school? Oh, yeah. What was my sex life like? And adding all of that up so you can really see it over time. And I'll push something else. We have a course where they work on stuff like this and you can sign up for it. But listen, I'm not here to sell you anything. I simply want to say that I think it's very typical for us to not remember. And I think there are parts, it's something that needs some kind of structure, whether it's working with other people or working in some kind of book, or it's not necessarily just going to occur to you. But boy, when we start looking at it, let me say one more thing about that. Um, we have a client that I've been working with recently and, you know, he said things to me like, well, I had a lot of sex with women or whatever he did. And part of treatment is to say, well, how much, how many? And, you know, he when we we had to add up the numbers, you know, how many this year, how many that year, how many until we were able to get to a number. And then we had to ask, how, how much have you spent? And we had to sit down again and add up the time and add up the numbers. So, you know, when we are acting out, we are deliberately leaving reality. And so to look back and say, what parts do I remember is often difficult without a real path. Well, and here's a couple of things that I noticed in here. It says 90 days past discovery. I don't hear, you know, what you're doing. Um, like, I, I, like, has the behavior stopped? That would be really, really important because if you're still going off to those behaviors, you're still going to be able to just compartmentalize and, you know, keep everything. Um, uh, it, it, it will be challenging to, to be able to do the so-so memory, you know, um, working with a qualified professional. I'm glad you're here. How, how many, you know, of the men's drop-in groups are you going to? I agree with the Sex and Porn Addiction 101 um, work group. Next one starts June 2nd. Call me if you, uh, or email me if you need information on that. Well, it's on Seeking Integrity. <laughs> I'll just do that. But it's a great group and it really gets to those foundations. I was talking to somebody today and, you know, th their person had been working with a therapist a long time and they didn't have a three-circle plan. There's no plan, you know. If well, there's no plan, it's I a mean, problem. The, the goal of the educational piece is to fill in the blanks for what you don't do in 50 minutes of therapy. Because I noticed in so many clients that 
they worked on the emotional issues, they had boundaries, this and that, but they didn't understand addiction, relapse, grief, trauma, you know. And so when you go into treatment, like a treatment center or, you know, even an intensive workshop, you're going to get a, a couple hours of education every day, but you don't get that if you just go to therapy. And so that's the piece. I'm not selling to you guys, I promise. But that's the piece we created online is so that people in therapy could get the educational part. And that's what yes. Tammy's talking about. Yes. And and it's so helpful. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, if you're going to do this recovery journey, you get the tools to do it right. And, you know, that's it makes all the difference. Floundering around. You know, I hear from people all the time that have been floundering around for a couple of years. And I'm like, it's torture for both of you. And it doesn't have to be. I'm saying there's resources to do things different that support each of you and both of you so okay and, and i really appreciate when gay men are dealing with this issue because i remember a time just to say it before marriage and all that when it was like oh you do what you want and you do it and you know people get hurt all the time so hearing people i'm not particularly conservative in that way but to hear people to hear two men value the connection they have and not want it to be interfered with on any level by other people, I think that's a really, I think that's a strength and I admire that goal for the two of you. So the next question, hi, do you view porn or anime porn erotic literature usage, flirting with married men and having emotional affairs with married men as love addiction or something else? I always thought love addiction was seeking love from someone at all costs to fill an insatiable need for love due to childhood neglect. Well, you got the love addiction part, right? <laughs> that is a very, one of the most succinct, I'd like to write that one down and put it on Twitter. Like this is what love addiction is. You had that absolutely right. But um, the porn, the anime porn, the erotic literature, that has nothing to do with flirting or, or wanting to chat someone up to connect or hoping you might, or chasing the wrong people. That's a solo activity. And so, you know, there is a reason why the meetings called Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous are called Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, because many of us have both problems. And when I read this, I don't hear just a love addict. I hear somebody who really needs to look at the balance of both of them. You know, let me say, Tammy, and I really, I haven't said this in a while that, you know, a lot of times when I at least initially meet someone for treatment or if I do one of the consultations here online, they want, they want help with their porn problem. They want help with their sex workers that they're seeing. You know, they want help with the affair. But what they don't see is that their entire sex life is a problem. You know, it's like, well, I'm having the affair and that's what my anger, wife is angry about. I got to deal with the affair. It's like, but you're looking at porn three hours a night, four times a week. Like that is the same problem in another arena. So while I respect what you're saying and I respect that you're looking at love addiction, I think that both issues are present from what you ask. And if it were me, I'd be looking at sex and love addicts anonymous as a place to get support. Um, yeah, that's my thought about that. So the next question, as the wife of an essay, I sometimes feel discouraged about my essay ever feeling comfortable with intimacy. It often sounds like it will never be his first choice. It will <laughs> always be forced. Is this the future I need to prepare for? That's a heartfelt question. Well, you get those all the time, Tammy. Why don't you start and I'll uh, glad to follow up on that. Well, I was thinking, guys, you've shared before how it isn't necessarily the first choice, but it's one of those things when, you know, it's so awkward. Like if, if we're always looking to be detached and, you know, keep people pushed away and, and it, you know, it's hard. It's, it is difficult to overcome, but can people learn differently? Can people, you know, start having the experience of, oh, when I am more vulnerable, when I am more real, this is how, you know, you know, how we 
are able to interact and that's a positive. So, so we can learn to do different, but it probably, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, we always want to return to, you know, to some form of comfortable. Um, Easy. So yeah, 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 exactly. It goes, but you know, it, so to me, that's, it's going to be a challenge, but I struggle. I had to learn in recovery, always and nevers and forevers were problematic for me because I get caught in all of those things. So for today, here's how things are. And I can have hope for tomorrow. I can realize that today is better than, you know, a few days ago or whatever. But but being in the, you know, do I have to plan on it always being this way forever? You know, that, that would be challenging for me to enter that space. Thank you. I, I I agree with all you said, and I want to add a few things. Um, Please. One is I think we need to talk about what is intimacy. You know, a lot of people think it means sex, and intimacy doesn't mean sex. At this core of intimacy is opening up to someone else and letting them see your vulnerabilities, inviting them in emotionally in a way where you could get hurt, you could get let down, they could disappoint you, but I mean, they could be disappointed by what you have to say, but they're willing to open up to you. Um, I think about lack of intimacy in a relationship, and I don't think about sex. What my head immediately went to is what our colleague and friend, Stan Tat, Dr. Stan Tatkin says, which I think he said in our podcast, by the way. He did. That, that, um, that many trauma survivors and addicts, they want to be with their partners. They want to be in proximity to their partners, but they don't actually want to engage their partners. They just kind of want to know that they're there. You know, and so this idea that I just want you around and I and I nice to see I'm going here, I'm going there isn't intimate, but it does give at least the addict the feeling that, you know, I am connecting this person. They're around, you know, we. So what is intimacy? Let me give you a good example. One of my favorite examples. Um, I think I said this to guys at the treatment center the other day. So um, I went to the doctor about two or three months ago, I had an elbow issue. And I was at the elbow doctor and he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, well, I have a PhD in sex. I'm a sexologist, addiction therapist. And he looked up at me and he said, would you mind if I ask a question? And, you know, I don't mind answering questions. I don't think people are intruding my boundaries if they have a question. So sure. And he looked at me, he said, you know, I'm almost 60 and my wife is in her early forties and I'm worried. Like, will I be able to satisfy? Like, what do I need to think about? Should I think about testosterone, this and that? And what I felt, forget what I thought was, what a wonderful man. Here he is taking a moment with somebody he doesn't even know that well, but he's kind of trusting that I'm a doctor. He's a doctor to open himself up and make himself vulnerable about something he was frightened about and worried about, but he thought I might have the answer. Because, and that's my example of intimacy. I'm never going to see him again. Well, I will if I have an elbow problem, but you know, he's not my friend. He's not my lover. He's not my partner or my husband or wife, but I felt the connection with him more than I feel with most folks because he was willing to open up in that way. Now, I wouldn't want everyone to walk on, up on the street and say, oh, I, heard, I saw you on TV, Dr. Weissman, would you please answer a question about sex? You know, that, that might not, this is what this is for. But in that moment, I felt a very heartfelt desire and trust that he was willing to open up to me. And by the way, I, and, and I could have shamed him. Or I could have cut him off and said, you know, I don't talk about work. What I did was just say, hey, I relate. I'm near your age. And let's talk about, you know, that for a minute. And it was two minutes and we were done. So I just want to say intimacy. And, and OK, one more thing. Sex is the is is one of the highest forms of intimacy. 
It's when you're physically letting someone into or putting your body into theirs. I mean, what could be more intimate than that? And if there isn't a foundation of opening up and connecting that has preceded the sex, then the sex isn't intimate. Sex, I think, is a byproduct uh, in a long-term relationship, not for us addicts. We can have sex with anyone we see. But in a long-term relationship, sex is the byproduct of meaningful intimacy. And that's often why addicts, us sex addicts don't have sex with you guys is we have no idea how to be intimate. We don't know how to connect. We're afraid of it on some level. And we're so used to a blur of people and images that you are much scarier. You could hurt us. You could let us down. You could make us feel less than. But that person on the street, I'm not intimate with them. That affair partner, I'm not intimate with them. The porn, I'm, so none of that can hurt me or let me down. But if I open up to you, my partner, which that's the scariest part, because then you might, then I might really be up a creek or reminded of things I grew up with. Okay. That's it. Oh, that's <laughs> that good. It. I'm, I'm, it's settling. So, okay. Hi, Dr. Rob. I am a sex addict. My wife is the betrayed partner suffering from my years of acting out in many ways. She has found her voice and has been sharing her anger now for about two years. We talk a lot, we talk a lot sometimes four to eight hours in a day, which includes mostly her expressing her anger. I do feel huge amounts of shame from the constant exposure to her anger. Do I have the right at some point to say enough is enough or can we find a level that is constructive for both of us? Well, this is a tricky question for me and Tammy to answer because we don't know where you are in your recovery. So, you know, uh, and again, uh, 12 cents to me, I wrote a book called Out of the Doghouse, a relationship saving guide for men caught cheating. <laughs> if you haven't read it, I suggest, meaning that sometimes we sit around expecting our partner to change, but we haven't done very much, you know, and this isn't you necessarily. I'm just saying, you know, if you're still occasionally looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, I don't want to talk about someone on the street, I'm talking about porn, or if you're still connecting to people, in other words, if you're constantly slipping, or they don't see a clear plan of recovery, or they don't see you having really done things to make big changes in your life, then they're going to stay angry. And, uh, and so, you know, and it's so it's our job to regain trust by doing and acting ways that are trustworthy. Um, no cheating, no lying, having integrity, you know, uh, saying what I mean, meaning what I say and not lying. Um, but if all those things are in place and you really are doing the best you can, and let me add one more thing to, and you've done disclosure and all that. Let me add one more thing that you're being very open and honest on a regular basis about what's going on with you. Um, then it isn't as much on you. Um, I am very concerned about any couple who spends more than at two years out, any couple that spends more than 20 minutes sitting down in the evening and talking about this, the idea of talking about this every single day for two to four hours would be a nightmare for me and I think is a horrible thing for any couple to do. Why would you want two years in to be spending two to three hours talking about all the stuff that you're miserable about? How about this? You set a timer and for two hours you talk about all the good stuff and the last 10 minutes you talk about the bad stuff. So that's provided your behavior is not continuing. So if you're in that good place, you're really being honest, you're, you're working on this, you've been honest with them, you know, all the stuff is good at your end. And I'm saying this to your spouses, so you don't get mad at me, okay? I'm saying if we are really doing our job, your anger, the intensity of your anger should begin to die down at nine months to a year. By 14 to 18 months, we're in a good place with each other. If that isn't happening, then there's some work that needs to be done with a couple, whether that's going to some kind of therapy, or it could be a little reality check for your partner, depending on where you are. Because I have talked to a friend about this, a colleague, and we kind of agree that 
you know, once it passes the year mark or so, and you're really doing your best, really, 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 then their anger becomes counterproductive. Then you're becoming the best person you can be, and they're still pushing you into you, but you're horrible and you're bad, and, and we're not. It's been a year or more that we've been working on this and working on ourselves, and we're not that person in the same way was doing all that to them. So today, a year and a half later, we are not really deserving of the anger from a year and a half ago. So partners at a certain point are undermining the process for themselves in terms of healing the relationship. If we're doing all the right stuff and they're continuing their anger. And I have heard addicts say and follow through on, you know, if this anger continues and I'm continuing to gain my own self-esteem and self-worth, I'm not going to be able to stay here because my recovery and my feeling good about myself is more important than is going to become more important than our relationship. If not, if 50% of our relationship is you're yelling at me. So now I'm not talking about three months in, I'm talking about over a year, I'm talking about someone who's really doing their work, but you spouses, you have your issues too, we all do. And sometimes letting go of us as the problem can be difficult. Um, and I get your hurt and your fear and your remorse and your all of that, but you know, anger has its purpose and its value and it also needs to dissipate over time or there's, a, there's really gonna be a problem. Tammy, I, I don't. I have lots of uh, thoughts on this one because I, I do. Because I'm like, I do wonder about the quality of the recovery. That's the the first place I go to because I do think that the anger dissipates for most people, not a hundred percent. So, so I'm really, um, I'd be curious to know how. I mean, so it's been two years, but but does that mean you've been in recovery for two years? You've got a solid plan. You, I mean, like. There's transparency about what your three circle plan is, your relapse prevention plan. Like you've done, if you, you know, there's no, there's no slips, there's whatever. I mean, if you're doing really well, then that, then yes. Um, th there's a, and I've sent the video to a few people, the Carpman, K-A-R-P-M-A-N drama triangle. And I feel like this couples on that triangle and it's, you know, a power. It's like, you're, you're, yeah, I mean, there's the victim and there's the perpetrator and, and, you know, I mean, there's all these things and you can keep doing that dance like forever, you know, but I also was thinking the 48 hours, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have time in my day to do that, nor would I want to be traumatized over and over and over and over again. So, so yeah, I mean, I like what Dr. Rob was talking about. It's like spend two hours talking about, you know, here's the progress we're making. Here's what we're, you know, having a contained space. And we've talked about it on a bunch of these different webinars are having 20 minutes, you know, twice a week. And we're going to talk about issues with our, um, you know, with our um, relationship. And, and hopefully some of it is like, I'm seeing good things here. Here's some things, or you said something the other day, whatever, but it's, it's more, keeping current, not re rehashing, you know, you did that, you know, four years ago and, you know, and then keep talking about it over and over again. So I do, you know, wonder like the level of trauma for the partner, because if it's constantly, you know, um, I mean, I hear that there was betrayal, suffering from my years of acting out in many ways. So um, getting qualified professional um, support for the trauma you know, would hopefully help in a different way, but it really, I still am curious about the level of recovery. Um, what is she seeing? What is she seeing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not what you're, you know, not what you're saying. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It doesn't cut it. You know, what is she really seeing, you know, that would be different, so. 
And I want to say something more about couples fighting, because I know this from just regular old therapy, and I think it's really important lesson to learn. I know in my own marriage, it's been important. When I get angry at someone, I want to bring up everything they've ever done wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like you didn't take out the laundry. And that's like the time you did this. And you know, it reminds me of that. And that's really destructive to relationships. It's not fair to bring up every single thing that's ever happened in the past, because you're angry at someone in the present. If it's very relevant, you know, well, this happened last week and now it's happening this week, different. But to bring up stuff that happened three years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, and, and especially things related to the addiction, if there's nothing going on to, you know, it's kind of like, well, you forgot our anniversary and that really hurt me. But, you know, think of all the times you weren't there for me and every day, you know, and turning that into a rant about something that happened before I got in recovery, it's just not productive. Um, pick your issues, make sure they're here and now, and don't bring the past into it unless you want to talk about the past. And that's a whole different conversation. So, And get qualified support. I mean, there are yes. professionals that can help guide this process. Next question. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, you spouses need therapy. Absolutely no question. But the whole codependency concept that you need therapy because there's something wrong with you is completely incorrect. That's why I wrote Prodependence. You need therapy because we've hurt you because we've devastated you, because your life has been turned upside down, or at least a support group, you need a place to go where you can understand that you didn't do anything wrong, and you didn't cause any of this to happen. And yes, you're in grief. And yes, you blame yourselves, you know, all to normalize and help you understand and grow past your pain, your hurt, and your sense of violation. That's why you need to be in therapy for, or get counseling or support, not because we're any in any way interested in what's wrong with you, but more your beginning to get out of all that pain and hurt and find your own way. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.